This week, after a century of consensus, the dinosaur family tree gets a shake-up. A lot of people are going to be very surprised by this result, and I think this is wonderful for the field. And astronomers' ambitious plan to photograph a black hole. So you need a pretty large telescope. You actually need a telescope the size of the Earth's. Plus, finding successful new combos of cancer drugs. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 23rd, 2017. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Just before we get started, we have a little favour to ask. If you like what you hear in today's show, please vote for us to win the Listener's Choice at the British Podcast Awards. That's britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Just search for nature and fill in your name. Right, on with the show. Dinosaurs became celebrities in the Victorian era when loads of bones of these strange ancient reptiles were being found and studied. In 1888, Henry Seeley divided dinosaurs into two main groups based, among other things, on the anatomy of their pelvises. There were the bird-hipped ornithischians on one side, things like Stegosaurus, Triceratops and Iguanodons, and the lizard-hipped Saurischians on the other, including giants like Diplodocus and teeth gnashers like T-Rex. This basic division is described in children's books and museum displays across the world. Only now, almost 130 years later, is a new paper starting to shake things up. To find out more, Shamini Bundell went to meet author Matthew Barron at the Natural History Museum in London, where he gave her a quick tour of one of their most popular galleries. So we're in the dinosaur galleries, and above us are two wonderful skulls. Uh, This is actually really appropriate for what our research has found, because these two skulls above us, one is Tyrannosaurus rex, the other is Triceratops horridus. One is a theropod, a big meat-eating dinosaur, One is an ornithischian, which is a a group of herbivorous dinosaurs. So these dinosaurs were thought to be very distantly related, but our research suggests that in fact that these two dinosaurs are much more closely related to each other than either of them are to, say, Diplodocus. Matthew Barron is, like many of the kids visiting the museum here today, really into dinosaurs. So he's very familiar with the standard picture of their relationships. But his new research is completely shaking up what's been a very long-standing and previously uncontroversial family tree. As any textbook will tell you, the dinosauria are traditionally divided into the herbivorous ornithischians on one side. So above us is Chaoyangosaurus, which is a stegosaur. This is Triceratops. This is Iguanodon. And on the other side, Saurischians, including the large elephantine sauropods. This very large femur is the thigh bone from a sauropod dinosaur, one of the long-necked tree browsers. And the famously terrifying theropods. So we're now coming up to the very large animatronic Tyrannosaurus rex. It's a particularly fearsome, two-legged, bone-crunching theropod. And while the visiting school kids here at the museum might be mostly interested in the giant animatronic T-Rex, If you look carefully, you can also find a display showing this basic dinosaur family tree. Carnivorous theropods and tree-browsing sauropods here, grouped under the name Saurischians, and the herbivorous Ornithischians over here. Away from the noise of the dinosaur gallery, I asked Matt how he ended up questioning this traditional division, especially since his PhD started out focusing only on Ornithischians. While I was looking at all of these early Ornithischians, I kept being struck by how unusual some of the elements of their anatomy were. 
they have lots of features which, when you look at them objectively, are remarkably like theropod dinosaurs, the meat-eating dinosaurs. The only explanation that I'd been given was, oh, these are just coincidences. And that just didn't sit well with me. Matthew and his colleagues decided to step back and analyse lots of different dinosaurs in lots of groups. Many such analyses have been done before, but this one was a bit more ambitious. Here's paleontologist Kevin Padian, who wasn't part of the study team. There have been a lot of studies on the phylogenetic relationships, the family tree of the dinosaurs, but they've mostly focused on individual dinosaurian groups. But they haven't really examined the entire dinosaur tree um, in such depth. And so this analysis has the advantage of using a different and larger set of critters than most previous trees have used. They've analyzed the characters used by people before, and they're also adding their own characteristics. And this, they think, is getting them themselves quite different uh, configurations, radically different, in fact. The tree that came out at the end of all of this was strikingly different to what we had been expecting. Back to Matthew Barron. Our hints at close relationships between ornithischians and theropods were proven by the data, but it was, it was still quite striking to see. And actually, no matter what we told the computer program to search for, how to treat the characters, how to treat the species, it kept producing this shock result, which was ornithischians and theropods together. Putting ornithischians and theropods together leaves the sauropods, like Diplodocus, alone on the other branch. Since the meat-eating theropods are no longer in a group with the sauropods, the name for that group, Sauriscia, no longer exists in the new tree. And this rearrangement isn't just about changing some names and redrawing some trees. It could tell us more about what the common ancestor of all the dinosaurs looked like. And it may hint that the almost feather-like spines found on the backs of certain ornithischians could be closely related to the spines that did eventually give rise to feathers in the theropods. That's if other paleontologists believe this complete shake-up. Kevin Padian again. A lot of people are going to be very surprised by this result, and um, they're going to be shaken up by it. And I think this is wonderful for the field because the importance of this paper is not whether it's right or wrong. It's um, how stimulating it's going to be for other dinosaur researchers to reanalyze what we've got, what we've been thinking, um, how we think we know what we know. People have to take their analysis seriously because they use the same methods as everybody else. You add a few different animals, you add a few different taxa, and your scheme changes utterly. What does that mean? Does it mean that we don't know anything? No, it just means that maybe we haven't been analyzing things as fully or comprehensively as we might. Or this new analysis could just be way off track. Time will tell. And if time does prove that this 130-year-old idea has been wrong the whole time, will the Natural History Museum be updating the display in the dinosaur gallery? Uh, museums tend to be fairly conservative um, in their exhibits because they don't like to redo them any more than they have to. Uh, and so I expect that if this uh, analysis um, stands the test of time, um, it may be modified a bit itself. It may shake up the existing structure when the dust settles, then the museums and the children's books will decide what they want to present. That was Kevin Padian of the University of California, Berkeley, who has written the news and views on the paper by Matthew Barron, who you also heard from and who is based at the University of Cambridge. Thanks to Sharmini Bundell and the Dinosaurs of the Natural History Museum London for that report. The paper and news and views article can both be found at nature.com forward slash nature. 
Thanks to all the folks recommending us on social media using the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. All this month, podcasters and listeners alike are sharing their favourite shows and introducing podcasts to people who didn't even realise their phone had an app for that. Share the love, recommend your favourite show this month using the hashtag tripod. It doesn't have to be us, but you know, if it is, that's awesome too. What Kerry's trying to say is that we're desperate for your approval. Astronomers around the world are teaming up. Eight observatories are joining forces with a single mission. I called up astrophysicist Heino Falke, who's been involved in this plan since the very beginning. We want to see a black hole. It's as simple as that. And uh, you wonder how you can see a hole? Well, if it's a hole on the dark background, you're not going to see anything, obviously. But uh, black holes are surrounded by uh, a lot of light from matter that's falling into it. And you see actually a hole (laughs) in a ring of fire. So it sounds like a fairly ambitious task. How do you actually make this happen and see a black hole? Unfortunately, black holes are very... Uh, small and compact objects. So in order to see an event horizon of a black hole for the very first time, uh, you need to be able to see uh, a mustard seed in New York from the Netherlands. Could you explain how, how do you actually do this? You need a very sharp uh, image of something. And uh, the bigger telescope, the sharper the view. So you need a pretty large telescope. You actually need a telescope the size of the Earth. Well, a telescope the size of the Earth seems like something that would be pretty much impossible to make. And I think most people would actually uh, object if we would cover the entire world with a telescope, I agree. (laughs) But so there's a trick um, where you combine telescopes distributed over large distances, and then you can create a virtual telescope that is, in terms of resolution the size of the distance between those individual telescopes. So if you have a couple of telescopes around the world where you record the data and you bring it together, then you can actually reconstruct an image. Practically, how much of a challenge is it? What are the obstacles to actually making this happen? To combine them all, uh, you have to have good weather at all sites around the world and you need uh, high-tech digital equipment. Um, We are recording petabytes of data We've mentioned that we're looking at a black hole. Where is this black hole? What, what black hole are we looking for? Do we know of lots to choose from, or is there just one we know should be there? Yeah, in principle, there are lots of black holes in, un- in the universe. But we also know that in the center of galaxies, there are supermassive black holes, which are probably the collection of millions, sometimes billions of uh, stars or black holes. And there is a big one in the center of our galaxy. And that is the closest one, and it's the biggest one on the sky. And that's why you have the best chance of seeing uh, the event horizon there. Can you describe what we're actually hoping to see? You know, Is it going to be a really detailed picture, and what will that picture look like? I'm afraid the very first picture will be rather crappy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, if, if you're lucky, it will look like a peanut or something like that. Um, and the, the reason is uh, that we're... While this is the largest number of telescopes uh, ever looked at these frequencies, it's still at the edge of what will give us a very good image. However, we think, and we've simulated that, if we add multiple observations um, over a few years, in the end, we should be able to get sort of a, a half a ring, a quarter of a ring that we could see. 
That was Heino Falke, and joining me in the studio now is reporter Davide Castelvecchi, who's written a feature this week all about this so-called Event Horizon Telescope. Davide, what are researchers actually hoping to learn by taking a photo of a black hole? In part, it's about uh, making sure that black holes actually exist and uh, work as advertised, because there's there's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but so far there isn't like a smoking gun. Or a photo. Or a photo. The closest thing to a smoking gun is the uh, gravitational waves that LIGO detected. Is it just to check that black holes exist, or would having a picture of one tell us something about how they work? If the black holes appear the way that theory predicts, then they are the black holes of general relativity. General relativity makes some very, very precise predictions. Any small deviation would be a huge discovery. Why is it only happening now? Has the technology only just got to the stage where it's possible to do this? Yeah, so you need to detect and record data at a staggering rate. We're talking about faster than even the experiments in the Large Hadron Collider, and they will record every little crest and trough of every electromagnetic wave that uh, arrives at these dishes to a precision of one-tenth of a nanosecond. So when do we actually get to see the picture? I know that later this year they're hoping to to run the experiment. Do we then see the output a couple of days later? Even to get to the stage where you see a few pixels, it will take probably a year. Because first of all, they have to take all these petabytes of data to two central locations. And then the real scientific work begins of figuring out what the data says. I actually asked Heino whether the prospect of having to wait for the results for so long made him at all nervous. Here's what he had to say. I'm already waiting uh, uh, almost 20 years (laughs) for this. I mean, another one or two years doesn't make such a big difference. That was Heino Falke, who's at the Radboud University in the Netherlands. I was also joined by reporter Davide Castelvecchi, whose feature you can find at nature.com forward slash news. Oh my God, it's the research highlights next. From Boston, here's Cory Locke. In the snake world, king snakes rule. These mighty constrictors attack and kill other snakes, even ones that are bigger than they are. To find out what makes them such successful killers, researchers studied king snakes and other snakes, comparing the size of their muscles and the forces they use to escape predators and constrict prey. They found that for all snakes, the bigger they got, the larger were their muscles, and the more force they used to pull themselves away from predators. But king snakes had much higher constriction power relative to their body weight compared to larger snakes. This superior crushing ability may result from the snake's distinctive posture during constriction. They wrap their bodies around their victims to form regularly aligned coils, allowing them to apply large amounts of pressure. The study was published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Researchers have discovered the oldest plant fossils. The findings suggest that algae might have been some of the first multicellular organisms to live on Earth some 1.6 billion years ago. Using 3D X-ray microscopy, the team found that the fossils had structures that are characteristic of red algae. Some of these structures may have been used in photosynthesis. The discovery could mean that the first plants might have evolved on Earth about 400 million years earlier than previously thought. You can learn more about the work in the journal PLOS Biology. 
A method based on the CRISPR gene editing system is helping scientists identify pairs of cancer-killing drugs. Kerry has more. There are lots of cancers for which we have good drugs, drugs that target particular genes or proteins to kill cancer cells. But here's the first problem. Cancers find ways to resist these drugs. What scientists know they need is a pincer movement, combinations of drugs that act on different bits of the same process or pathway. These combinations are already used in therapy. For instance, one drug could damage the cancer cell and the second could stop it repairing itself. Here's the second problem. There are so many possible combinations that it's impossible to do enough experiments to test them all. This week in Nature Biotechnology, one Stanford University group reports the beginnings of a way around this problem. Mike Basick and his team said to themselves, we want to know how pairs of drugs could help kill cancers. Drugs act on genes. So let's take thousands of cancer cells, pick a different pair of genes in each cell, knock them out and see which cells die. I spoke to Mike Basick about the technique they've used and whether they found any promising pairs. So here you've used a technique that's commonly used to find out about the interactions between genes. This is kind of a proxy, right, for how the drugs might act. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So <clears throat> I should say we're making a, a huge assumption, which is that drugs work uh, in a very specific way and target uh, only one gene. And of course, you know, as anyone who's worked on drugs <laughs> will tell you that many times they're they're not as specific as one would like. They have many off-target effects. But we're, we're making the assumption that if we target a gene, which is itself the target of a drug, and we find synergistic interactions between those genes, then the corresponding drugs should be synergistic. But if we just go along with your assumption for now, you sort of needed to, I guess, create these maps first, which you did using CRISPR. You had to make these pairs of mutations. Yeah, so uh, so what we did was to design uh, very large pooled libraries of CRISPR guide RNAs that target uh, the targets of uh, FDA-approved drugs, and then basically stitch them together, uh, and then, you know, we do this in mass, and so you have, um, you know, one pool that has about 21,000 drug pair combinations. And then you could try and identify these sort of synergistic combinations. And what you're looking for essentially is for the cells, which are chronic myeloid leukemia cells, you're looking for which ones are most affected, i.e. which ones are killed best by these combinations. Exactly. The the cells that, that get the toxic uh, pairs of deletions will drop out of the population. One pair of genes that you found effective are involved in triggering cell suicide, and there are already two drugs in different stages of development that target them. But presumably for combinations of drugs, even though each drug has individually been approved, you still have to go through clinical trials to, you know, use them together in combination. That's right. Although uh, many of them have already been tested in patients. So, you know, there's a a huge barrier that's been crossed just to show that the single drug can be used in in patients. Um, But then you're absolutely right. Any new combinations would have to be investigated uh, carefully um, by themselves and and, and FDA approved for the the end combination. And so next then, it strikes me you could go two ways. You could test the help test the combination of drugs that you found looking promising here, or you could, I suppose, do the same thing again with all different types of cancer cell. 
Yeah, so that's one of the things we're really excited about for this technology is that we, we built, you know, a set of tools which can be, you know, they're highly adaptable and, you know, can be used in a range of cancers, and we're doing that right now. Did you find any kind of surprises where you knew that two drugs worked for like a different type of cancer, but you threw them together here as part of your large screen and you found something working that you didn't foresee? And we found a number of combinations which, you know, if you look at the particular pair of genes that came out, they make pretty good sense. So two different isoforms of a kinase that's often critically important for driving growth of a number of cancers. And we find if we knock out those two different uh, isoforms in combination, those are highly lethal. Um, you know, the, the reality is cancers differ enormously in the particular constellation of genes that is required for maintaining their growth. And so, you know, being able to take a library where you have a lot of likely pairs and scan it across many different cancers, we think we should have a lot of potential for finding a cancer-specific lethal pairs. Even further into the future, one presumes that because every patient's cancer cells are different, you could even take cells from a particular patient and kind of personalise their treatment by running their own cells through uh, some technology like this. Yeah, I think that's a really exciting possibility and something we're, we're interested to look into for sure. So having these libraries where you're targeting combinations of drugs, we think should be ideal for actually scanning across patient samples. And I think, you know, really fantastic work has been done to model uh, patient cancer cells in, in mice, for example, or to grow them temporarily in culture. And you can imagine coupling the technology we've built with, with that sort of model to really look for patient-specific therapies. I think it'd be very exciting. That was Mike Bassick, who's at Stanford University in California and whose paper is in Nature Biotechnology at nature.com nbt. Only the news to go in this week's show. And last week for the news chat, we spoke about Trump's changes to the Environmental Protection Agency in the US. Just after the podcast aired, Trump announced his first budget proposal. We're heading over to Washington, D.C., where Lauren Morello is standing by to lay out how Trump's proposed budget might affect science. Lauren, first of all, how surprising were the announcements in the budget? Trump had signaled that he wanted to cut government spending, and he and people in his administration have signaled that they're not a great fan of research on climate change or environmental regulation. But the budget does propose an 18% cut for the National Institutes of Health, and I think that really shocked a lot of people. Biomedical research is traditionally a, a bipartisan thing in the, in the United States. 18% sounds like an awful lot. Have, have they specified where that money is going to be cut from, or is it just... 18% across the whole NIH? So we're a little bit in the dark, um, and I'll explain why. Most presidents, when they first come into office, don't have time to put together a full budget request. The actual legal deadline is the first Monday in February. So traditionally, a new president puts together what's called a skinny budget, um, and then a fuller request later. So this is Trump's skinny budget. Um, I will say that it's skinnier than most. For NIH, it just lists an 18% cut, which would take the budget down to $25.9 billion and says that the NIH should reorganize the 27 institutes that make it up and eliminate one of them, the Fogarty International Center. And other than that, there's not much detail. You mentioned, it's, of course, it's not just the NIH getting hit by this. Who's getting hit the worst? So interestingly, science agencies fared 
both the absolute best and the absolute worst in Trump's budget. The smallest cut was to NASA. That would be uh, just under 1%. The biggest cut in the entire budget would be for the Environmental Protection Agency, and that would be a 31% cut. Climate seems to have been dealt a pretty rough hand across the board, not just in the Environmental Protection Agency. That's true. At NASA, Trump is proposing to decrease funding for the Earth Science Division from 1.9 to 1.8 billion. Um, he's also proposing a 17% cut at the Energy Department's Office of Science, which funds climate and energy research, along with some other things. So as far as we can tell, climate is kind of taking it on the chin. One really clear sign of that, in case the budget document left anybody with any doubts, is comments made by uh, Mick Mulvaney, who directs the White House Office of Management and Budget. He was asked at a press conference the day the budget came out about the cuts to climate change, and he told reporters, we're not spending money on that anymore. We consider that to be a waste of your money to go out and do that. Wow. Uh, It seems really like there's kind of fighting talk almost. What's the reaction been from the research community? I think a lot of researchers are gutted, even if they thought this was coming. I mean, I don't think this is a surprise to anybody who gets research grants from the EPA. I think the biomedical folks were legitimately surprised because, again, things like trying to cure cancer are usually not seen as political. Is there any good news for research funding in this? Um, we've heard from some people at NASA who say they're relieved that this budget is not as bad as they thought it would be, even some people who deal with earth science at NASA. Um, I'd say the other bright spot is that Congress does not seem to be embracing this budget for a variety of reasons. We saw some early statements out the day the budget came out from key players in Congress, including high-ranking Republicans who objected especially to the NIH cuts, others who thought the EPA plan went too far. And it, it really just remains to be seen what Congress is going to do with this. Because remember, the president makes a budget proposal, but Congress actually formulates and approves spending bills. And the president needs to approve them before they become law. But He can either approve the whole thing or veto the whole thing. There's no line item veto. So Congress is really in the driver's seat when it comes to spending. What would it take for this to to not pass Congress? Congress is going to start essentially from a blank slate when they start drawing up spending bills this year. I think some elements of this are going to make it into those bills. Really, the thing to watch for is that Trump is moving the goalposts here. He's proposing a 31% cut at EPA. So if Congress only cuts EPA by 5%, people are going to be relieved. But, you know, if this had started with somebody saying we're going to cut EPA 5% or 10%, people would be up in arms. So I think one thing to watch for is the shifting goalposts. It's quite telling that when I asked you for the best news, the best news you had to offer was that some cuts weren't as bad as you might have thought. There's really not much for research in this budget. And there are some big question mark still. The budget doesn't include any proposed spending number or details for the National Science Foundation, which is a glaring omission. Um, and I think if I worked there, I'd be slightly nervous about that. It offers very little detail about the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It doesn't include an overall number. It just says that Trump wants to cut the very successful long-running Sea Grant program and will fund the current generation of weather satellites. But 
in the future wants to look to more commercial weather data. I think, you know, it's not the final word, so we really will see this spring how Congress deals with it and how it spools out. Lauren, thank you for breaking it down for us. For more on the budget and for other stories, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week. Come and say hello on social media. We're at Nature Podcast. And remember to vote for us, britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. Backchat is hitting the feed overnight, so tomorrow get ready for predatory journals and time crystals. That's all from us for now. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>